Our scripture reading is from Numbers 13, 1 to 2, and verses 17 to 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or are they weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mickey. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question. And that is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Maybe you'd bring a didgeridoo to church. Uh, <laughs> what would you do if you weren't afraid? Think about that for a moment. I know when I asked myself that question this week, I think something I would do if I weren't afraid is I would definitely do more hiking around heights. I love the view that comes with heights, but I'm also pretty terrified by them. This is about as high off the ground as I like to go. Um, and here's a picture of me this summer. This is on our, our vacation. We were at the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park there. And just over those guardrails is about 2,000 feet straight down to the Gunnison River. And, uh, you know, you I'm smiling in the picture, um, but I'm definitely holding on to Lucy's hand there, probably a little tighter than she'd want. Uh, and my, Rachel would tell you my heart was beating pretty fast there. And I, I didn't even like, she's like, move a little closer for the picture, you know, to the edge. And I'm like, I don't even like being this close, so the guardrail to that kind of height. Um, which is part of the reason, because of that fear of, of heights, why I was so fascinated uh, with this new film out called Free Solo. And it's about uh, Alex Honnold, who on June 3rd, 2017, became the first person ever to free solo climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. 3,000 feet of sheer granite straight up. And, and free solo in the, in the climbing, climbing world means that you're, you're climbing with no ropes, no parachutes, no protection at all. Just you and the rock. And he made that climb in less than four hours. Most people who do it with ropes actually set up you know, portable ledges and, and even sleep overnight on the rock face as they make their journey up. And I'm certainly not a climber. I have no desire to be a climber. And uh, while 99% of me thinks that Alex is absolutely crazy, um, there's 1% of me that kind of wants to be him, though. Right? And I, and I don't want to do that. Uh, absolutely not. I, uh, my hands start sweating even just looking at pictures like that. Um, I absolutely don't want to do that. But I, what I, I do want that sense of, of courage. Because so often my life is characterized by safety, by comfort, by self-protection, by risk avoidance. Uh, how much of my life is ruled by fear? How much of your life is ruled by fear? What would you do if you weren't afraid? And, and listen, please, again, don't do that. I'm not asking you to do that. Yet at the same time, if you're a Christian, 
We have faith in God, the one who made Yosemite National Park, who made El Capitan. But so often we, we work out of fear, we parent out of fear, we manage our relationships out of fear. Fear prevents us from being generous. It, it prevents us from getting to know those who are different from us. It prevents us from sharing Jesus, from reordering our lives. The fear of missing out. The, the fear of being wrong. The fear of, of being known. I recently heard someone say, I was at a conference, and they just said, we're more transformed by being known than by knowing. How many of us lack transformation because we're afraid of being known? Well, talking about his experience preparing to climb El Cap, Alex said this. He said, you will always feel fear, but over time you will realize the only way to truly manage fear is to broaden your comfort zone, to stretch yourself, to refuse comfort. That's fascinating. He's not saying, I'm not afraid. He says, you always feel fear, but the only way to, to manage that is to broaden your comfort zone. And what we need as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is bold faith. We need bold faith individually, but we also really need it right now as a church. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to examine one of the greatest stories of bold faith in the Scriptures. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Numbers. And there's Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can look it up on your phone. Numbers is the the fourth book in uh, your Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And you see, we believe at Christ's community that that we as a church are at a crossroads. Uh, We have five campuses around the city. We continue to grow. And we've never been more committed to our mission to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and our world for Jesus Christ. And and many of you are here this morning, a part of this church family, because of the ways that we seek to live out that mission as a church. And and one of the things that I love most about Christ Community is that 12 years ago, uh, that was when we started our Olathe campus, when we became a multi-site church, we decided that instead of asking people to come to us, we would take church to them. It's why we have five churches. It's why we are here in Brookside. Because place matters, doesn't it? Neighborhoods matter. And because of that localized focus, we also realize how essential it is for each of our local church families to have an adequate home to facilitate that mission. So for example, here in Brookside, through the generosity of those who went before us, who were part of other campuses, we have this incredible facility that we meet in each week and throughout the week to facilitate the mission that God has us on. But, but two of our campuses don't have what we have. Our Shawnee Mission campus meets in a middle school. Our downtown campus has long outgrown the, the rental space that they have. I, I think I've shared before that their kids met in the tent in the alley behind the, the church throughout the summer. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but we believe that God is leading us toward a solution for those two campuses. And I can tell you it's not going to be easy, 
but I do believe that it's going to be good. And it's going to demand something from all of us to stretch us individually to expand our comfort zones. And it's going to take bold faith individually and collectively. And so let me pray for us now as we begin dive into the text that, that, we'll, that we'll have bold faith together, that we'll learn from the example we see here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we look at how you've worked in the lives of your people in the past, and as we look at how you've been at work in, in our lives, in our church family in the past, that you would kindle afresh a bold faith to follow you into the future where you're leading us. Help us to trust you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, bold faith takes a big story. Bold faith takes a big story. And we're jumping into that story right here, the middle of that story in the book of Numbers. So let me set the context for you a little bit. It's early on in the history of God's people in Numbers chapter 13. This is maybe 1500 BC or so. This is after the founding fathers of, of, that, of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This is after the burning bush moment with Moses. And in fact, the people that we are going to see in Numbers 13 and 14 are the very people who just, and this is just about 20 months, just not quite two years after they walked through the Red Sea on dry land, after they saw the plagues in Egypt. And now here in Numbers 13, they are poised on the edge of the promised land. And God has told them that this land is yours. It's my gift to you. It's your home. I'm giving this land to you. And there on the edge of the land, some will say yes, but the majority will say no. And what's the difference between those two groups as they stand on the edge of this promised land, both seeing the same realities, both seeing the same opportunities and challenges? What's the difference between those two groups? It's their faith or lack of it in the God who has made the promise. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that these events, specifically, if you read the context in this chapter, uh, specifically referring to the events of numbers. He says they are a resource, Paul says, for those who need to be reminded of the dangers of failing to exercise bold faith in God's promises. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. And Paul writes of these events in numbers. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us. For our instruction, on whom the end of the age is, has come. So, so no, we are not Israel. Uh, clearly, it's a bit different here. But it would be foolish for us to forget these stories of how God was at work in the lives of his people. They were written down for our instruction. It would be foolish for us to forgo what we can learn from them about faith or the lack of it. And as we begin this story, we learn three crucial aspects of faith. That faith rests, and faith remembers, and faith receives. That it rests, that it remembers, and that it receives. So first, faith rests. Numbers 13 opens with God commanding Moses to send out scouts, to send spies into the land to see what it is like. 
Numbers 13.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, now why does God do this? Why does he have them take the step of scouting out the land? I mean, he says right there, the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Why do they need to go in first to send the scouting party in? I think we're to see a number of, of reasons here, but I think a big part of it is that he wants to give them an opportunity to have eyes wide open faith. To see both the challenges as well as the opportunities, the hardship and the difficulty of what God is calling them to and giving them. But I think it's also important here to pause and ask the question, but this, well, what is faith? We're saying God's giving the opportunity to exercise faith in this moment, in him and in his promise. But what is faith? Because we need to start with a definition, don't we? And, and there's so much we could say here that faith is, is, is belief. In fact, those words in the New Testament are, are, are synonymous. They're the same Greek word translated faith and belief. Faith is belief. It's trust. Hebrews in the New Testament defines it this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the reality of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so there's certainly a cognitive side to faith, right? Faith and reason are not opposed. Again, I think this is why God wants them to see the land before they go in. But I love this word rest to describe what faith is. You see, every Monday, all of the, the preachers who are, are preaching that week, as well as our worship pastors, our residents, we, we gather together as a teaching team every Monday afternoon to, to prepare for the sermon and to kind of figure out the direction that it's going to go. And, and believe me, all of my, my best ideas that you hear here on Sunday morning come from that conversation, from that meeting. And this past week, it just so happened that we had a couple of guests with us in that teaching team meeting. Two pastors from Iran, who are visiting us with our ministry partners, partners in the work of the gospel, both of them having spent time in jail, one of them having spent time by herself in solitary confinement for many days. And as we were in the room together, working on how do we want to talk about faith? How do we define faith? How do we help people understand faith? One of the individuals who was with them shared a simple definition that I love. It's rooted in the Westminster Catechism of Faith, and it's been lived out by these two persecuted pastors from Iran. It's simply this, that faith is resting in and receiving from the finished work of Christ. That faith is resting in and receiving from the finished work of Christ. Faith rests. Faith knows that it doesn't have all the answers, but it rests in the one who does, and the one who has made the promise, even when life is restless. And sure, there may, may be fear, anxiety. Of course there is. And yet we find rest, not in our own abilities, but in the promises of God. And if that's true, then we can follow him at all costs. We can risk, we can stretch, we can move out of safety and comfort. And listen, if you're a Christian, this is so important. Faith is not the last resort, is that we sort of try everything on our own and then we say, well, we've kind of come to the end of ourselves. Now let's exercise faith in God. No, faith is, for Christians is the primary way they see the world. Faith is our, our primary posture in which we live out our life. The primary way we see 
Faith that life matters. Faith that, that God's way is truly better. Faith that you and I are already known and forgiven and loved. Faith that death will not have the last word over us. Rest in God's promises. And you see, faith can rest because it remembers. The reason that faith can rest is that it remembers. And the first thing that faith remembers is faith remembers our God. It always begins with God. It has to. Because, listen, it's not the ultimately the strength of your faith that matters, but the object of your faith. You see, it, it's not how much, how much faith you have that really matters, but it's what you're putting your faith in. Right? So, for example, anytime you get on an airplane and fly somewhere, the moment that you step off of that jetway onto the plane, you have just placed your faith in the pilot of that plane. Now, you may walk onto the plane confident, relaxed, you know, put in the earbuds, take a nap, wake up, not sweat at all. You have all kinds of faith in that in that pilot. Or you may walk onto the plane and you may be shaking, you may be terrified, you may be holding on to the edges of that seat for the entire flight. But you know, it's not how much faith you have that makes the difference, right? If you have a lot of faith in a bad pilot, it doesn't matter. If you have a little faith in a good pilot, that's all that matters. If she can land that plane, doesn't matter if you're sweating or sleeping, right? It's not how much faith. It's the quality of the object of your faith that matters. And every one of us here, Christian or not, we're all trusting in something to give us confidence, to give us hope, to tell us that life matters, to help it make sense. All of us are are looking to something. So the question is not whether we have faith, but will what you've put your faith in actually come through for you? would actually come through for you. In Numbers chapter 13, God's asking his people to have faith in the promise that he's made to bring them into this land. Now, now maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, but how do we feel about God's people involved in, in this conquest of a land? That's a little unsettling to me. But if that's been a question for you as you've read through the Old Testament, um, let me recommend a book that's been really helpful to me. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, It's really helps understand some of the historical context of what's happening in these chapters. And if you want more conversation on that at some point, we'd love to, to have that. And yet don't miss that the overwhelming emphasis from Genesis to Revelation, from the entirety of the Bible, that God is working to rescue and redeem. That he longs to rescue and redeem all people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Even this land and God's people entering the land are meant ultimately be a blessing to all nations, a place of salvation. God has promised. He promised to them. He has promised to us. He promises to you. Faith remembers God. But also, faith remembers our limitations, our humanity, 
our, our frailty, our weakness. And this is important, I think, because sometimes we think that faith is just a, a blind leap or that faith is only for those who uh, are, are simple or uneducated or who need a crutch in their lives. But if you go back to the story, look at verses 17 through 20 again, you realize God is not asking them to take a blind leap. He's not asking them to, to trust him without having eyes wide open. No, he, he sends them in to, to look at the realities. Verses 17 through 20, look at this. Moses sent them into the land to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country. Now, keep that in mind, that language of hill country, because it's going to be important in just a second. And see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are stronger or weaker whether there are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are the camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees or not in it, be of good courage and bring back some of the fruit of the land. See, God wants them to go into this with eyes wide open. Bold faith does its due diligence Bold faith doesn't ignore the realities of camps and strongholds, of obstacles and threats. Bold faith remembers and embraces our humanity, embraces our limitations, sees them for what they are. They can't do it on their own. God wants them to see that, that this is too big for them to do on their own. This life is too big for us to do on our own. You, you can't parent. You can't fix that relationship. You can't make your school better on your own. Faith remembers our human limitations. And, and you know, we certainly cannot fulfill the mission that God has called us to as a church on our own apart from Him. Which should be both freeing and frightening all at the same time. Because it's not all up to us. We can't do it on our own. That's really freeing. But also, wow, the challenges are really big. That's frightening. And yet faith requires something from us. God is not just, doesn't just hand them the, 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 the promised land. He wants their due diligence. He wants them to know what's ahead. He invites them to participate in his work. He invites us to participate in his work every day. God didn't have to do it that way, and yet somehow he's orchestrated the world in, in such a way that he invites us to participate in what he's doing. Faith remembers our limitations, and it looks to the one who has no limitations. So why else did God want them to spy out the land? As we, as we sit here in Numbers 13, they're poised on the promised land. He sends Moses, says, God says to Moses, send them into the land, spy out Why? I mean, I think, yes, to have them have eyes wide open to what's coming. Yes, to remind them of the realities that they're facing, that they, they are limited, that they need him to do this, that they cannot, there's no way they can do it on their own. Both those things are true. And yet, also, I think there's another thing here. I think it's to remind them of their story. Because remember in verse 18, mentions specifically, go to the hill country. God said, check out the hill country, specifically a place called Hebron. It comes up a couple of times in Numbers in 13 and 14, this land called Hebron, this hill country of Hebron. And 
I think it's easy to kind of look at that and be like, okay, so God's just giving us a little geography there. Why is that important? Why does he specifically say hill country? Why go to Hebron? Why go there? Because Hebron was the epicenter of Israel's faith. It was the geographical center of their faith up to this point. All the stories they had heard as kids growing up, their heroes up to this point, Hebron was the geographical center of that. Abraham built an altar at Hebron. Sarah, his wife, died and was buried at Hebron. Isaac and Rebekah lived there and died there. In the midst of a, of a great famine, Jacob was forced to move to Egypt. Joseph saved and preserved the lives of his people in Egypt. But do you know Jacob's dying wish when he's in Egypt still? Is when the people come out, bury me in Hebron. Abraham, who first heard the promise... Isaac, Sarah's child of promise. Jacob wrestled with God, who wrestled with God. Joseph, who rescued God's people. Do you think it's a coincidence here that now when they're poised to go back into this promised land, that the place that he wants to make sure that they go is to Hebron. Make sure you remember Hebron. For faith to grow, we have to remember our story He's reminding them of their story, and we need to remember our story. Because if you can understand how God has been at work in the past, you can rest in Him in the turbulent present and, and trust Him for the future that He's calling you to, that He's calling us to. So what's your story of faith? What have been some of the milestones? How has God been at work in your life? What are those places, those people who have been key for you? And maybe if you're a parent, maybe you take some time this week and talk to your kids about, this is my faith journey. This is how, God, this is how we've seen God show up in our lives, in my life. Maybe talk with a friend about your faith story. Maybe invite them to tell you theirs. One of the best ways to grow in our, in, our, in our faith, to grow faith within us, is to hear other people's stories of how God has been at work in their lives. That's why it's so encouraging to hear from those two pastors from Iran on Monday. So what about us as a church? Christ community. What, what, what's our faith story? What's our story? Well, like I said at the beginning, we are at a crossroads. We have two Campuses that simultaneously need homes, that need buildings. Uh, how are we going to go about that? We need to talk about those questions, and we will. But today, at the five campuses, we want to tell a bit of our faith story as a church. How has God been at work in Christ's community over the life of this church? Because did you know we're about to turn 30 as a church? Next year, 2019, will be our 30th birthday as a church. Christ Community began in 1989 in Overland Park when Tom Nelson, my pastor, my boss, my friend, my colleague, when Tom and his wife believed that Kansas City needed a new church and that the best way to bring about spiritual renewal, to reach the lost, to impact a community for the long term was by planting churches. And so they left Dallas 
1989 with pretty much nothing. I think Tom said was, told me the other day, like $26 in their checking account when they got to Kansas City. And on top of that, Tom had even failed his church planting assessment. <laughs> I actually told him, Tom, you, you'll be a great pastor, uh, but you're, you're not cut out to be a church planter. You know, but the day after he and Liz arrived in Kansas City, Tom went out to check the mail and opened the mailbox, and there was a check for $5,000 made out to our denomination to plant this church, to plant Christ's community. Think about that return on investment 30 years later. And this was a note. I have a picture of it. Tom shared this with us. This is a, a note that came with that check from the person who gave it. And the last line there is, hope this gift gives you a little push. Man, 30 years later, what a push that was. You know, the church began in 10 years on. They were a mobile church meeting in Overland Trail Middle School, 1997. This is the home of, of Christ's community. And, and in 1998, still meeting in Overland Trail Middle School, wanting so desperately. I mean, we were just, just in the early stages of the church. We wanted to buy land. We wanted to be able to, to build a building and to get started. And that congregation had saved and put together $50,000 for a down payment on land. And that Thursday at an elders meeting in, in 1998, the elders met, and instead of using that $50,000 to buy the land, to put that down payment on, they, they decided to respond to a need that a church that we had helped to start in Romania had. They voted send that $50,000 to that Romanian church. And, and, and listen, you, you cannot make this stuff up. The elders decided that on Thursday. On Sunday, someone gave a, a check of a half a million dollars to buy the land to start the, the, what's now the Leewood Campus Building Project. Bold faith. And, right, this isn't about giving money so you receive more money back, right? This isn't some kind of weird prosperity gospel stuff. No, this is about bold faith and trusting God and obedience to what you think he's calling to and then watching him show up in incredible ways. And we trusted and stepped out in faith. So, so fast forward then to 2006, and we have been, been talking about this multi-site thing, and is this a way for Christ's community to, to reach new parts of our city? Could multi-site be the way? And if you know anything about Christ's community, we, of course, we, we built a team, and we put together a process, and we went through all this, and we looked at all the due diligence stuff, and we said, okay, in two years, we'll start our first multi-site campus. Again, because you can't make this stuff up, it wasn't two years later, but two months later, that we had our first service in Olathe. About a dozen people, a church was closing their doors, and we got this, this little building and 10 acres in Olathe for next to nothing. There was just fields in every direction. There was a little country church that was closing. They still wanted that building to be used for gospel ministry. And the Olathe campus is built on the faith of that little church and the gift that they gave us. And it wasn't easy. Uh, in some ways, it was a slow start. Um, but then all of a sudden, we couldn't keep up, and we needed to build. Uh, but that happened to be 2009. If you remember what happened in 2008, 
It's a major financial crisis, and so we're poised, this building's bursting at the seams, but how are we going to expand? How are we going to build? Not a great time to raise money. But in 2009, someone who didn't even attend Christ's community, they weren't even a part of our church, gave a million dollars out of the blue to Christ's community. And we expanded, and we added on to that building. And then the next year, 2010, we started the downtown campus. I had just completed my pastoral residency. I was a brand new, green, unexperienced pastor. Rachel and I had just gotten married. And we literally, we went on our honeymoon, we came back, and we started working on this downtown campus thing. And I had just received a, a very mediocre grade on my church planting assessment. But Christ Community stepped out in bold faith once again because we had nothing when we started the downtown campus. I mean, there was, we had no building. We had less than a dozen people. We started praying in the living room of our loft together. I have a picture. This is one of those early gatherings, just a handful of people who believed that God was calling us to do something. We, I mean, the, even the cat is in the picture. We were counting the cat as part of, you know, it's like just any, how many breathing things were there at the, at the prayer meeting? Well, maybe the cat will count. But slowly and surely it started to grow. And, and now they're, they're bursting at the seams in their downtown space. But, but not because of me, because in 2012, I handed off the leadership of the downtown campus to Gabe and Allie Coyle, who've done an incredible job. They're better than I would have ever done in that context. Because God called us here to help start this thing in Brookside. Many of you know the story of, of how this came about, but it's another one of those moments of incredible God working to push us forward in ways that we would have never imagined. Because we've been praying about starting something in this part of the city for a while, but we were still dealing with the fallout of the economic downturn. I mean, the budget was so tight in those days. I mean, so tight. We weren't thinking about adding part-time staff positions, much less saying, let's find a new facility and start a new campus. And then someone drove by this beautiful building that was for sale and said, if Christ community wants it, we're willing to provide the resources to buy it, to renovate it, even to provide operating dollars for the first 18 months to get this thing off the ground. An incredible moment when we thought, gosh, I, I, we can't even hire a part-time staff person, much less start a new campus. And now nearly 400 of you every Sunday, men, women, children, students, gather in this place to be reminded that the gospel changes everything. And to invite others into that same reality with you. Another step on the journey, 2015, Olathe was out of room again because those cornfields turned into housing developments and people were moving to Olathe like crazy. And so we took a bold step and we sent out 140 people from the Olathe campus to start the Shawnee Mission campus. 140 people who exercised bold faith, who, who left a, a building... Um, a nice facility in Olathe to start setting up and tearing down church every single Sunday in a school. 
But that only helped the Olathe campus space problem for like five minutes, because again, everyone was moving, is moving to Olathe. And so in 2015, later on that year, we received a $3 million gift. Again, out of the blue, a $3 million gift that allowed us with the generosity uh, of, of, of many of you here in this room added to that through Reach KC to build a building that's not big enough to hold that whole campus and have adequate room for their children and students. And again, because of your generosity, by the end of the year, our debt on that, we just finished that project in April, the debt on that project will be less than a million dollars. 30 years of bold faith. What's next? And yes, I, I point out those big moments, those big milestones, some big gifts along the way that we couldn't have expected or imagined. But, but don't believe for a moment that that's the sum total of who we are as a church. Because those are just a few instances in 30 years of following Jesus. Every gift, every sacrifice, every volunteer, every invitation, every way that you serve your community and your work and school. And I want you to hear this, that there, there's nobody at Christ's community who is smart enough, who's talented enough, I mean, certainly not hip enough, right, to accomplish what God has done in 30 years through this church family. Because Christ's community, friends, it has just been a group of people, ordinary people, who have just, in, in some key moments, stepped out with even just a little bit of faith, trusting God that he would show up in big ways. And we have another one of these moments ahead of us. We're still in the very initial stages of this, and we hope to have more information for you each week as we go along. But the campus pastors, senior pastors, elders, enthusiastically and with complete unity, and yes, also with a lot of fear and trembling, agree that now is the time for Christ's community to move forward. We need homes for our Shawnee Mission campus and our downtown campuses, and we've identified potential properties for each we're beginning the process to get them under contract, contingent on congregational approval. And we hope to have some exciting news for you in the coming weeks. And as that news unfolds, don't start with the numbers. Don't start with how are we going to get this done. That matters, and we, we'll get there. But start with this. Start with remembering what God has done in your life, in our life, in the life of his people you believe that God can do that through us? So what do we do? Well, first, start praying. All of those moves in the life of Christ's community have been preceded by prayer, deep prayer for God to be at work, for him to provide, for him to move. And then come back these next two weeks to, to learn more about what's happening, to get to know our campuses, our mission, why we think this matters so much and give. Both faith requires sacrifice, and we're going to think creatively about how we do that, but I encourage each of you, especially as we approach the end of the year, to be thinking about how you'll participate in that. How could you be involved? Because bold faith takes a big story, and we have one. 
And faith rests. Faith remembers. And just we'll end with this. Faith receives. You know, the Israelites poised on the edge of the promised land here, they have a choice. And, and again, we are not the Israelites. These buildings are not the promised land. Good grief, I'm not at all. We're not making that connection. But these things, again, Paul says, were written down for our instruction. They have a choice. They can retreat into fear, into self-protection. They can go back to what's comfortable and familiar. Or they can move forward in bold faith. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life. I think that was really safe and comfortable. You see, a life without fear is a life that's never stepped out in faith. And here's the question I just want to end with. When we exercise bold faith, when we step out in bold faith, what is it that we get? What do we receive? Because I'll tell you, it's, it's not buildings. It's not big financial gifts. What we get when we step out in faith is we get God. We get Him. We see Him. We experience Him and feel His pleasure. And the reality is, is that you will not know what God can do in you until you can see what He can do through you. And when you see Jesus, I think it will be enough. Again, I can't tell you how meaningful it was to be with those two pastors from Iran on Monday, sitting in that teaching team meeting, these pastors who had been imprisoned, risking their lives, time in solitary confinement, because they believed that Jesus was better than safety. It was really humbling. And as we were talking about what is faith in that meeting, one of the pastors, she she told this story. She compared it to a time she was driving in Iran on a steep mountain road, a sheer granite face on one side and a sheer cliff on the other. And she said it was absolutely shrouded in fog. She could not see more than a few feet in front of her. There were no guardrails We all leaned in, listened to the story, and she said, in those moments, all you can see is the yellow line on the road. And you watch that yellow line with your life. It's no use looking around you. You can't see anything else. So you just watch the line. That's faith, she said when you don't know which way to go or what to do, when you feel outside of your, your, your comfort zone, when, when you feel this desire to be safe, to creeping in, and when you can't see beyond the limitations of, of your illness or the mean kids in your class or the difficult relationship or the crisis in your marriage, or you can't see as a church how we're going to accomplish what God is calling us to, look to Jesus, she said. Lock in on him, that yellow line, the one who died for you who loves you, who defeated death for you. And when we see him, we can take one faith-filled step at a time. Will God help us in this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to learn from the example of your people that you've written down for our instruction. 
would you teach us afresh what it is to have bold faith in you in our lives individually and in what you're calling us to collectively. In Jesus' name, amen.